Well, good morning, church. That is some section of scripture. Wow. Wow. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to think about, uh, there is no way to be amusing with all of that. I hope you haven't come this morning to be amused, but to listen to the Word of God. Because, uh, I'll, let me start with a story here. When I was a teenager, I was uh, playing golf, and I was having a good round and really feeling full of myself. And uh, I had a friend who was uh, playing in the same foursome that I was in, and he was just struggling to hit the ball that day. And uh, that did not stop me from smarting off and acting cocky and putting him down. And we're teeing off on the 18th hole... And the 18th hole was, uh, was built high. The fairway was way below us. It was on top of this ridge. And I had just said too much for too long. And my buddy, he hauled off, and he hit me right in the face. I was a little startled. Backed away a bit. He grabbed my clubs and dumped them over the hill, throwing them down the ridge. Now, while I was uh, am not endorsing violence this morning, if you'll use this as a metaphor, not as an endorsement, what I am saying is that sometimes we need a real straightforward smack in the face. A lot of Scripture is not written that way. A lot of it is narrative. A lot of it is poetic. A lot of it is extremely compassionate. Sensitive. Caring. But here this morning, it's a wake-up call. This seems to be John the Baptist's M.O. John comes in and says to his audience, You brood of vipers! Now let's back up just for a moment. The political climate into which John spoke was just awful. Behind this list of names that's in the text, including Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip and Ananias and, and Caiaphas, is a land of oppression and a people of misery. And bad government was the rule. And on account of that, people lived in fear and they lived in danger and they often lived in poverty. And it was all reaching a boiling point, and they were looking for answers, and they wanted change, and they wanted relief, and they wanted revival, and they wanted God to renew His covenant promises. And so in search of a solution, they would go out into the wilderness to check out this odd, fiery prophet. And he comes out swinging ready to smack you in the face. 
John says this in verse 3. It says that he went out into the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A message of repentance. And a baptism, baptism for Jewish people, saying essentially to them, you need to start over. A plunging immersion to signify a new start and a new beginning. And again, remember the context. John is doing all of this so that they can get ready to receive the true king that's coming. It's hard to get prepared. It's hard to get ready for the simple reason that we really are pretty self-centered. And as we read in the psalm earlier this morning, self-deceptive, if we're not careful. Our habits and our routines and our, our ruts. And basically, we want things the way we want them. That was true in the first century, and it's true now. And so John's smack in the face is that repentance is not optional, but immediate and demanding. He says in verse 7, as Rachel already read to us, that John said to the coming crowds out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come to flee from the coming wrath. And then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father. You know, we're members of the church. It's not a qualification. Don't begin to say to yourself, or for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. How else do you want me to read this and tell the story? What should we do then? The crowd asks, and he tells them plainly and bluntly, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Seems to me that John goes after our self-centeredness, our greed, our love of things. He confronts our lack of care for our neighbor. He is interested in our wallet. His demand is economic. He is showing us the spirit of the Savior who is to come, and He is saying you cannot hold on to your old ways that are only interested in your self-interest and serve the one who is to come. John requires a way of life where taking advantage of others has no place. And so he calls out tax collectors and soldiers, and he contrasts a way of life 
for this, the tax collectors and soldiers where their way of life is in collusion with the government and is in collusion with the political structures, with a, way, a new way of life that he's saying that's not, where needy persons no longer are to be mistreated. So he tells the tax collectors, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. If you could imagine that tax collector who was involved and engaged in this system that was corrupt, where high officials outsourced their tax gathering to collectors who agreed to give the government a certain amount, and of course, the uh, ones who collected the most were the ones who got the work. And the people had no idea how much this was, so the tax collector would pay to the officials, uh, uh, he would collect, the tax collectors would collect above and beyond, even more, to enrich themselves. So the whole system is sort of corrupt from the top down. And if you're living in this system, and it's your livelihood, it seems to me it would be extremely easy to rationalize it. To justify. And John says, be fair at the expense, your expense, even though the system is unfair. Because I want you to get ready for God's kingdom. And it's interesting that John does not offer the tax collectors, collectors an option. Don't, he doesn't say, leave your jobs. Don't stop being tax collectors. But you go about your work in a different way so that your values will align with the king who is coming. And then he says to those Roman soldiers... Herod ruled Galilee as this client king for Rome, and there are pro these guys are probably employees of Herod. They're Herod soldiers. And they use their authority to intimidate and take advantage of the people and for self-gain. And so to them, John says to these soldiers who ask, what should we do? And he says, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely, and be content with your pay. He essentially gives them a smack in the face. John's instructions to these workers, to be fair, is to bring your commitment individually to justice into this system of injustice. And this challenge, again, to me, seems like it would have been incredibly daunting for even one soldier to listen to John. And yet, can you imagine trying to answer the call of Jesus and live under the rule of worldly kings? which is what all these soldiers were being required to do. And it would have been risky, and it would have been dangerous, and it would have been difficult. 
So John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and, and did you notice there was a question associated with each of the three groups of people? First the crowd, and then the tax collector, and then John. It's this one question. What shall we do? Each group asks it. And John, without it pulling any punches, says, well, change your mind, change your heart, change your body, change your actions, take your actions from God, get right with God is what he is essentially saying. And I find that question interesting, what should we do? Because it's right in alignment with Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection and after Jesus ascends and on the day of Pentecost, when people's hearts were cut, when they were cut to the heart because they realized that they had crucified the Messiah, what was it that they asked? What shall we do? And it seems to me that there are two circular questions that are going all the way through here that could apply for each one of us, and in fact should, even this morning. The first is the admonition, is the challenge, repent, and the second is, what shall we do? Or what we might start with, what shall we do? And the second the response is, to repent. And these questions go around and around. And again, I would say, as I've read the passage again and again this week, it smacks me in the face. It's a wake-up call because it requires God's work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, of our false self, of our self-deception, Basically saying, and I understand it's not a real friendly or a popular or a message that just kind of just draws us in and endears us to, to, to the preacher this morning or even to the Word of God. But it basically is saying if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, then you must play by a different set of rules. We don't play by the rules of our society, of our culture, of the power brokers of this world. And somehow those within earshot were ready for change and they wanted revival. They wanted to meet God afresh. That's my definition of revival, to meet God afresh. And that wasn't for everyone in Galilee because not everyone was down by the Jordan. But those who showed up to hear John, revival is what they wanted, and I pray revival is what we want. I know we need it. I'm reminded of another passage in Acts chapter 3. I mentioned the one, what shall we do in Acts chapter 2? But in Acts chapter 3, in verse 19, when Peter is, uh, is, is sharing with people about responding to the gospel, here's how he says it. Repent then, same idea as John. See, this wasn't exclusive to John. And then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I don't think there could be a better description of revival. So this question, what do we do? And the response, repentance that brings lasting ref uh, refreshment is the key. Here is where we need to deal with ourselves, and I'm talking, I'll start with my own self here, is that what I, I want more than so often, I don't really want repentance. 
And I don't know then that I really want revival because you can't have revival without repentance. What I want is relief. And that's something very different. Most of us want relief, not revival. We want to feel better, not to be better. We want to trust ourselves more confidently, not to trust God and His future more fully. And repentance is coming to grips with our true condition before God and crying out to Him for change. And revival, all the way through Christian history, is always built on repentance. Maybe built on more than that, but never less than that. So as these three groups ask, what shall we do? What if every person here this morning asked that question? What should I do? What if every family asked it tonight in your devotional time? What should I do? What if every... It's interesting, it's a we question in the section here in Luke 3, we collectively ask, and what if, we, what if, what if every, all the school teachers asked, what should we do as we enter a new season, new school year? All the business people ask, what should we do? All the moms, what should we do? All the retired people among us, what should we do? All the students Asking, what should we do? And I don't know how, even though I've been trying all week to uh, think or rationalize myself out of this. So I'm going to just put it this way in three very simple words. Choose unqualified Repentance. By unqualified, I mean, I mean, stop the rationalization. Stop the self self deception. Stop the comparison to other people and the critical spirit. Deal with it. Deal with it under God. Or expect His judgment. Produce fruit, the Scripture says, in keeping with repentance. Say, I was wrong Say, I am sorry. Say, I love you, Lord. Take the medicine. Get on your knees. Make the changes. It is in your best interest. I want you to see, church, that repentance is not a bad word, it is a gift. Just like forgiveness and grace. And mercy and love are gifts. Repentance, to be able to change. Can you imagine a life where we could not change? We cannot change. It's a privilege. 
to be able to change your mind and change your heart and change your relationships and change the direction of your families and change your priorities in order to align with the Savior. So I've had to look at myself and say, okay, where is that critical spirit come from? And Lord, how can you root that out? And in those areas of self-deception, how can I confront? How will you confront that? And those areas of rationalization, no more. And then I've had to turn around and get up here and preach and say, I have to, just like John, have a little bit thicker skin. Because it doesn't seem like John was all that friendly or all that nice. Do you want to meet the true Savior? That's what this preparation is for meeting the Savior. It will cost you. It'll cost you. That's what I see here. God has ways to go about his kingdom. The question is, will it include you? Will it include me? To bring about revival, repentance, Forgiveness, baptism. Prepare us to meet and walk with the Savior. And they address our inertia. There's no negotiation in this text. A new kind of king demands a new kind of people. Even if it requires a smack in the face. 